0: Ooh. Welcome to Irish Passport uh, Let's do it Welcome to the Irish Passport
1: I'm Tim McInerney
0: I'm Naomi O'Leary
1: We're friends Can okay, welcome, to Naomi?
0: Ano fad Tim This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics uh-huh. I'm recording One One Two Two Three,
1: three. Okay Hello everyone and welcome to an all new episode of the Irish Passport podcast and you might have been expecting our next installment on the War of Independence miniseries which is coming up we promise you but first we really have to get a grip on what's happening in current affairs because we've been leaving it a little bit thrown to the wayside for the last few months while we've been on the War of Independence. So today, yes, I have corralled Naomi, (laughs) Naomi F. O'Leary, to tell us everything that's going on. What are we going to be talking about, Naomi?
0: Right. So we have a menu of current affairs to kind of provide the latest on, Mm. um, including what's the latest with the Irish government, Mm -hmm. um, of course, the big B-word Brexit, what's going on with the old protocol issue. Uh, Big changes, of course, over in the UK, and we'll discuss a little bit of that. Um, and yes, then we'll be getting back to the War of Independence in a few weeks.
1: Okay, alright, so where will we start? What You know what? I'm going to go straight to the nub of this, Naomi. Okay. Because it wouldn't be the Irish passport unless we told everyone what the hell is going on right now with Brexit. Mm. So,
0: oh god, probably we're recording right now on Sunday, um, like the 17th or so. 18th, 18th it's 18th the 18th of September. And so, this week that's about to happen, we will. It will be marked by the funeral of Queen Elizabeth on Monday Mm. and then pretty much as soon as that's over and the kind of mourning period in the UK is over, we should expect things to start moving again with the whole protocol negotiations. That, to remind you, is the arrangement that was agreed for Northern Ireland in order to avoid the existence of a hard border on the island of Ireland. Mm. Um, There's always been uh, unhappiness about it, and the UK government has tried to change it. Unionists don't like it. And so there's been this kind of deadlocked talks about what to do about it, which basically haven't made progress. But we're expecting all the discussions about that to kick off once again in probably the coming days.
1: Okay, right. So now I have loads of questions to ask you about this. Um, Before this funeral business Mm -hmm. kind of took over media uh, attention for the last ages, um, there was talk in the air about Article 16 potentially being triggered by this new Prime Minister in the UK, uh, Liz Truss. And there's this feeling that you know, after this strange kind of interlude of this morning period that maybe things might have changed, that this is kind of a moment for people to step back and maybe reassess what's going on. Could you yeah, yes. tell us where we are with the, that? M-
0: the mood at the moment is certainly one of outreach, definitely from the European Union side. They don't want to be having conflict with the UK. That's the long and short of it, mostly because of the war in Ukraine. They are allies in that and they see that as being sort of like a reason why they shouldn't be spatting in public about this. Mm. Um unfortunately though on the UK side there seems to be a political imperative to have conflict with the EU um because it seems to it, it's sort of demanded by the right wing of the Conservative Party and we've seen successive prime ministers in the UK use that issue to take power, including the latest one, Liz Truss, the new prime minister, who's very much beholden to the right of the Conservative Party Mm. by, you know, she posed as being very hardline on this whole question of Northern Ireland. Um, So she has uh, something of an imperative to, you know, strike a very hard line and give those hardliners in the Conservative Party what they want. Um, So there's a few options for what she could do. One is that Article 16 um, thing that we mentioned. Uh, that's a clause in the agreement that was reached with the EU that allows for parts of the agreement to be suspended in case there is um, social and economic disruption or damage due to it. It has to be temporary in its time period. Um, and it's sort of the, the idea is that it's a temporary measure while the negotiations would fix whatever the problem is. Um then there's another option, and we, this is potentially sort of more serious. This is the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. Mm. It's moving currently through the um, House of Lords. In oh. uh, it's already passed the House of Commons, and what it does is it essentially it it rejects and supersedes the protocol. So it basically says this doesn't apply anymore. We uh, we get rid of it. UK law has supremacy over this international treaty. Um, And instead, we're basically giving ministers the power to do whatever they want. So we don't need to follow this treaty, which is now international law. Now, if you speak to any legal scholar, pretty much anyone will tell you that that is in breach of international law. They have an international agreement that says something contrary, but they're saying, no, our national law is just superseding that. So it's in breach of a national uh, international treaty so the eu because of that has taken what's called infringement proceedings mm. um which ultimately can end up in this case going to the european court of justice fines being imposed on the uk and the big bad terrible outcome that this could ultimately lead to is a trade war between the eu and the uk um this would be extremely damaging it would be particularly damaging for northern ireland it throws into question you know, whether their goods could continue to be sold into the single market without any checks. That would be a big question. You know, Ireland, the Irish government would be very upset about it. They'd be wondering whether there would be any problems with their exports as well. Um, So it's a a very bad outcome. And there's a lot of reasons to think that the UK wouldn't want to risk that because their economy is really, really struggling. They're getting hit with, you know, the currency devaluing, um, massive debt is accruing. A a trade war with their biggest trading partner is really not what they need right now. And it's thought that the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson shied away from driving the momentum towards that for that reason, because wiser heads basically had a word in his ear.
1: OK, right. And this this complicated issue and kind of like chess chess playing, right, is made all the more complicated because a lot of this, as far as I understand now, correct me if I'm wrong. A lot of this is play, being played out in recent months through posturing, um, most particularly because before this kind of break that we've seen, a lot of what Liz Truss had said about this was in the context of her leadership race, right, True. for the Conservative Party. And
0: even the preamble to that, where she was, she was a Remainer, right? She campaigned for Remain. She actually used to be a Liberal Democrat. Um, so she really had to rebrand herself as a, ha- as a hardliner. And to do that, she was the genesis for this Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. That was part of her whole uh, recreation, her makeover, I, I suppose, as, mm. you know, a nationalist, um, pro-UK hardliner,
1: yeah, right. So she, you know, the things that she was saying, just like in any kind of uh, election race, right, mm-hmm. the things that you say are often exaggerated, they're often there as a means to an end, it doesn't really mean that you're actually going to do them. And I don't think anyone really expects that you're actually going to follow through with all these kind of uh, announcements that you make in a context like that. So in that context, yeah, she was really playing up to the ERG, the European Research Group, which is mm-hmm. this hardline, very, very far right element in the UK government. Um, and very very pro Brexit uh, Tories, basically the most pro Brexit Tories. Yeah. Um. She was playing up to them, and there is a question about whether you know what ha- what she said during that period really reflects what she might do now. Now, I wanna I wanna mention something else that happened during that period as well. Yeah. Um. In the same context, which was that very kind of shocking moment where Liz Truss was asked whether the state of France was a friend or a foe. Yeah. And I think, oh God, it seems like a million years ago now, even though it was a few weeks. Um, but I think she said something like the jury's out on that. She, she said something like that um, anyway, that was just a little bit shocking because, you know, France and the UK are just these two huge economies on the continent of Europe. And it just seems mad to kind of throw that in the works. Now, if she was posturing on that level... Then you have kind of counter posturing from the EU and from individual member states. So you could take the example of Emmanuel Macron mm-hmm. responding to that in this really kind of taking the higher road, higher um higher ground uh line where he says, you know, the UK has always been, you know, our our, our, our best ally in this and that. Yeah. And despite, he said, despite their leaders, the people of the UK are always friends of France. Yeah. Um, which, you know, like was a pretty brilliant little line that he put in there. But it also shows that, you know, they're playing games as well in in this way. Now, I want to also get out that um, in response to kind the EU uh, bill, excuse me, the the Northern Ireland Protocol bill that's going through the House of Commons Mm -hmm. and this idea of triggering Article 16, all these kind of threats that are coming out of the EU government, the UK government, Mm -hmm. the EU has been taking the line of none of this needs to happen. We can just talk about this and fix these exact same problems through negotiations with us. So all of these things in a certain way are kind of presenting positions and playing, I I mean, playing a game sounds a little bit crass, but it's hard to know what people will actually do, what people are actually willing to do.
0: Well, you're right. Um, So the EU for some time, let's say the guts of a year um, or longer, has essentially been taking the approach of we will not escalate and you can't get us to escalate even through sort of these provocations because they've recognised the political dynamic of that is only to the benefit of of the Conservative Party in the UK. Mm -hmm. If you can provoke the EU into being big, big bad EU and taking it to court and taking big actions and stuff like that, then it works only entirely in the political favour of the UK. So they've almost been stonewalling Um, You know, they come out with these extremely moderate statements that just talk about um, negotiated and consensual solutions, um, always very friendly, and they um, and and just like super low key. Mm. Um, so they won't. Uh, they try to avoid escalating, and also just to keep it really, really boring. Because I think they they see that this whole issue has less and less traction over time, which I think is true. Mm. Um, so they are they are taking that approach, and also they just keep saying, you know, we've proposed all of these things, which they did last October. We've proposed a, a package of. Of suggestions which will ease the implementation of the protocol and reduce the number of checks and all of this um, along the Irish Sea. And we're just waiting for the UK to actually engage with that and respond to it and come back with, okay, we don't like this, but we could use more of this and that kind of thing, which they say they the UK just hasn't done. They haven't properly engaged on the protocol yet. So that's where we stand. And during the summer, on the down low, there were um the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Connor Burns, was making background outreach to two key figures trying to find a way forward. Those figures were Tony Blair and Bertie Ahern, former leaders in the UK and Ireland, uh, respectively, who had a key role in getting together the Good Friday Agreement. So secretly in the background, they were sort of using their elder statesman capacity in Mm. relation to the Good Friday Agreement. Both of them discredited in other areas, which is quite interesting. But
1: Significantly. Right, but they still
0: have clout in this particular... Subject of the North because they did, you know, they are credited with bringing about the peace agreement there. So they were, they were sounding out unionists, they were sounding out the different sides, going as, as go betweens and trying to figure out is there a landing zone here? And it was really interesting because I was in the European Parliament recently. Bertie Ahern was an invited guest to a gathering of MLAs, elected representatives to Stormont, mm-hmm. um, who were invited over to Brussels. Had uh, invited to a dinner with Mara Shefkevich, who's the European Commission's point man on this whole protocol thing. Everyone was there, people from the UK uh, embassy over there, people from the Irish, UK, Irish officials, and also lots of MEPs, both Irish and European. Mm. And they all gathered there basically to be like, okay, let's talk about this. Let's hash it out. Let's see if there's, you know, what is everyone's feelings about this? Is there a way forward? And what was really interesting was the DUP attended. This was the first time that the DUP had attended. And this was actually a room in a parliament where you had Sinn Féin and the DUP sitting down together and talking. And this was interesting. And the guy who brought them together was Bertie Ahern, which is kind of amazing. Yeah, that Um, is
1: amazing. I think maybe we should actually, for younger listeners or listeners abroad, um, may not be that familiar with Bertie Ahern. Um, Bertie Ahern was a Fianna Fáil um, Taoiseach. Yes. For, for ages, actually, <laughs> in the 1990s and early 2000s, if I remember correctly, yeah. Um, and he was—I mean, it's difficult to kind of remember this now, but he was so popular. He was the, a really, really popular leader for a while, yeah. right, in Fianna Fáil. and in a way. Hmm. In a way, he kind of represented a certain kind of modernization of Fianna Fáil, certainly from a kind of business perspective, right? Mm. He was the face of the Celtic tiger for uh, ages, right? Yeah. He kind of turned Fianna Fáil into this kind of money-making, business, kind of savvy-looking party, right? Or that was the image that it created. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a Dubliner, he had a local pub, and people used to see him down at the local pub um, on the north side of Dublin in um uh, condra, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> also my grandparents local, yeah right,
1: yeah, so you know he he was a man about town, right, and he was a good speaker, he was a fairly good speaker, and he made a good impression, and he looked pretty professional um I mean it, like it's a lot of people will be banging at their radios when they hear that, but at the time, that's how it felt. He was later completely disgraced, basically. It, it
0: all came crashing down <laughs> in the most spectacular fashion.
1: Yeah, can you, like, explain? Oh
0: my god, I mean, the. I think it's important to remember that we experienced, or certainly I experienced this year as the, as a young person who was sort of college age and who was forced to emigrate essentially because of the extent of the financial and economic collapse that the policies led to. They were, so um, the, the country basically ended up in loads of debt. Um, Bertie Ahern was essentially disgraced because of financial scandals. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a whole tribunal about it and he was accused of lying. Or actually the, the tribunal said he did lie. Uh, He claimed not to have a bank account. There was extended stuff, all sorts of complex things to do with financial transactions, dodgy stuff going on with developers. So it was the most dramatic kind of fall from grace, completely associated with Ireland's um, economic collapse from being a thriving economy to having to take an international bailout, being forced to take an international bailout, impose massive austerity and misery on people. It's an extremely bitter chapter of history, which had very consequences, real consequences for pretty much everyone we know. Uh, People's incomes were uh, cut into dramatically due to austerity, like in a concrete way that I think people in other European countries don't always understand and are basically everyone we know of our age emigrated.
1: Yeah, right. And meanwhile, politically speaking, (laughs) Fianna Fáil was transformed from this like face of the Celtic tiger and the most established party in Ireland for a hundred years into this like kind of synonym for sleaze and corruption Mm -hmm. and failure, really. And Fianna Fáil, like we've said a few times on the podcast, has never recovered from this. And for a lot of people in Ireland, Bertie Ahern is persona non grata. They will just, they will uh, be furious. They'll start swearing when they hear the name Bertie. but for a lot of other people which is something honestly that I don't fully understand a lot of other people said ah no he was a good man you know Mm -hmm. there's that kind of feeling you know ah no good old Bertie they kind of they stayed by him Mm -hmm. and for that reason kind of alone he has managed to just survive as this figure that pops up every now and again and I think during Brexit he suddenly started appearing on radios commenting and it was like excuse me Bertie what like who invited you you? like we're not interested in what you have to say about this but here he is then let's get back into this room so we have Sinn Féin and the DUP in the EU um, headquarters here.
0: European Parliament. In the European
1: Parliament, with Bertie Ahern between the two of them. That is a kind of bizarre situation. It
0: was his image and his authority as someone who brought about the Good Friday Agreement that had the power to bring them together. Hmm. They came because he was the keynote speaker. It had all been organised by this Fianna Fáil MEP called Barry Andrews, who invited them all. Um, And it worked. It actually brought them into the room. Uh, They all sat down. It was a round table. And what was so interesting was the MLAs. Many of them didn't know each other. They've never sat in Stormont. Stormont isn't running. So it was a way for all the rival parties to actually meet each other and find out that the other ones didn't have two heads or horns Mm. or, you know, green skin. And they were all human beings. And they actually, you know, in their own way, they all wanted the best. You know, Mm. they were all driven by what they thought was the best thing. Um, So they were brought into this room. And Bertie Hearn basically spoke without a prepared speech, just with like notes. And he was like, super informal. It was Bertie, I'll play you some of the audio. Can you deal with every
1: last item by technology? Uh, I don't think that's possible, but you can be, certainly deal with a whole lot. I personally believe that this isn't rocket science. I Personally believe that this is not some impossible
0: task. He just was like, right, so super informal. We've got this, we've got that, this is the thing. Let's break it down, lads. At the end of the day, it's extremely easy. Uh, We are looking for a way that checks can be, there can be enough monitoring to satisfy the EU, but it's done in such a way so that it's not a border. It's not considered a border. It's not deemed a border and it doesn't offend people as a border. And that's all we need to do. So we need to talk about what goods need to be checked exactly, what's the minimum that's acceptable and in what form do those checks take. And he personally thought that they could be done Technologically, almost overwhelmingly, with little or no physical checks like border posts, kind of thing, or mm. custom checks uh, along the R C in the ports, basically, and that's that's how we broke it down. It was like it's actually pretty simple if you want it to be simple. It was interesting to see him in this context because for me, yeah, he existed as a guy who was a figure from the past, um, and then to see him operate, I saw him walk up to the Unionist MLAs, right, and he sort of strolled up to him. And they turned to him with smiling, happy faces. And he cracked jokes about football. And it was instantly just, like, very warm. Every, and, and they, he clearly carries respect. He carries respect. And he's also able to just, like, talk to people in this very informal way, like human beings. And it was so interesting to see him slip back into that role.
1: Mm, that's, yeah. That is interesting. Maybe that's why he survived, actually. Yeah. If he's just good at that.
0: he's. I mean, he's good with people. Yeah, right. It. And you yeah. can't
1: really... Take that away from someone, no matter how <laughs> disgraced they are. Yeah. Now, I kind of want to know the context of meeting in the EU like yes. this, or in the EU Parliament. Um, because, of course, the MLAs, none of them, technically, are part of the EU, right? Yeah. They're, they're um, representatives of a jurisdiction that is outside the EU, yeah. but that is so in this controversial yeah. kind of like economic arrangement with the EU, which is yeah. the protocol. Um, so would that not have been seen for the unionists as a little bit provocative as a setting or?
0: That's why it was so good that the DUP came. Mm. Um, so, because yeah, they could be like, that's nothing to do with us, Mm. but they did come, um, um, because it, it was Bertie because, you know, he had this certain authority and prestige, I suppose. Um, and the, the reason why it's happening is because, right. Northern Ireland is still part of the single market and customs union. That means that it's in line with all sorts of regulations in the EU that are decided by the EU. But there is no elected representation of the people of Northern Ireland anymore to affect how those regulations are made. And everybody pretty much realises that's not good. That is not ideal. You need to have the people who are living the consequences of regulations having some sort of say in how they're made. That's pretty much a cross-party position. So all of the Irish MEPs in the European Parliament had been lobbying for some sort of formal mechanism for consultation for Northern Ireland so that representatives can have a say in how all of this is, is, uh, is being made and decided. And that doesn't currently exist. So this thing uh, that was organised by Barry Andrews, he basically said, I'm going to keep lobbying for this, some kind of structural representation for Northern Ireland in, in Brussels and in the EU institutions. And until it exists... I'm just going to personally fund from the Renew Party, which, funny enough, is Emmanuel Macron's European group. um, We're going to fund these things to actually bring Northern Irish uh, representatives here to hear them, to give them a platform to find out what they want and channel that into, you know, into the decision making, basically. So it's it's an informal thing that's just being set up to try and hear Northern Ireland and involve it. Um, a Sinn Féin a representative an um, MEP called Chris has summed it up during the talks and he said look if, if Northern Irish farmers are going to have to be following certain standards then representatives of those farmers should have a say in what those standards are I mean it's pretty logical mm. so that's the idea of bringing them together here but the other I suppose mood that was in the air was like let's fix this can we fix this can we all just get together here and Find out something that works for everybody so that this doesn't keep rumbling on, and so that Northern Ireland people in Northern Ireland have predictability and security in terms of what to expect, so that businesses can plan so that there can be investments made based on uh you know uh, what regulations are going to be in a year's time because in the absence of that, if things can change from one day to the next, the u k can impose a, a some a protocol bill which suddenly means that you know it's not actually. Um, maybe in the single market anymore to the satisfaction of the EU. All of these things are potentially hugely disruptive and they prevent planning and they they stymie like normal economic growth, which it could be benefiting from.
1: I, this is, I mean, this is kind of extraordinary, really. And in a way, like it, it, it fits into as the strategies that you were talking about earlier of taking the high ground um, and, you know, looking for solutions in this kind of calm and boring way. Uh, but also like this must be in a way really deeply embarrassing right because like here we have the UK effectively refusing to negotiate about these same issues with the EU in any real or meaningful way Mm -hmm. and the EU having to set up um, a space, a locus for representatives elected to a UK jurisdiction, so that they can sit down and solve the problems <laughs> I that know. the actual Westminster government isn't solving for them. Yeah, and all of these problems being caused by the negligence of the UK Westminster government in the first place. Like, what are we going to do if the if Westminster goes ahead with this thing that's going to really harm us, and the UK government isn't helping them solve that issue? I mean, that's really extraordinary. This
0: point was actually made by a Dutch MEP. It wasn't just Irish MEPs who were there, but there was also representatives from Germany, uh, France, uh, Nathalie Loiseau, quite a senior French MEP, who's close to Macron, was there. And Thijs Rutten, who's this Dutch MEP, he was like, you know, I mean, he said something like, I'm really glad that Bertie O'Hearn, you have just uh, punctured a lot of myths about the protocol. Because, you know, Bertie Hearn had said, you know, the EU did not set out to have a border in the Irish Sea. And this was actually forced to happen because the previous deal was rejected by the GDP, hmm. essentially, and that this would have avoided all this. So this is very much caused by, by the UK and by the Unionists, actually. Um, and um, Thysarton said, you know, ironically, you know, we are actually going to keep trying to look after the interests of UK citizens, even when their own government is not doing so.
1: Yeah, that is something else. Now, I, <laughs> <laughs> I recall from your tweets about this event that uh, Bertie Hearn said something like, I don't understand what your problem is with the po- protocol.
0: Yes, he. Uh, that yeah. was an interesting moment, actually. He said all of this would have been avoided by the original backstop agreement. And at that moment, he looked directly at the DUP representative and he said, for the life of me, I'll never understand why your party rejected that deal. It was quite a moment. Right. Yes. yes,
1: the backstop, which... Uh, a million years ago actually four years ago I think or three or two I don't I really don't know pandemic time Um. it was was
0: Diane Dodds as I recall who he addressed that remark to
1: okay right and that would have that was a kind of um, uh, it's complicated but it would have solved this whole mess before it ever came out so
0: I mean I think people in Westminster have a different view of this but essentially what it was was that the default is that not just Northern Ireland but the whole UK as a whole would remain within the single market and customs union and that if the UK wanted to diverge from that, that would mean they would have to follow all the regulations of the EU, more or less be in line with it. And if they wanted to diverge, they could indeed diverge. But if it diverged, then there would be a border in the Irish Sea. But it would be the decision of London. It would be London who would have to decide to do that and put in those checks. And so they would have to politically own that. And there was, I think, on the UK side a hope. On the EU side, I hope that they would choose not to, that Mm -hmm. they would choose to just remain in line. Um, That would avoid any borders anywhere. um, And it would be a much closer trading relationship, a much closer relationship between the UK and the EU. Remember, the EU didn't want the UK (laughs) to leave in the first place. So uh, that, and Ireland, you know, would have been very happy with that, of course. Um, But it wasn't enough for the UK because they were like, this isn't really Brexit. The whole point of Brexit was to diverge. And also, I think that, that they would have had to have been the ones who made it clear that they were choosing their Brexit above Northern Ireland.
1: Yeah, right. And there was more than that as well, right, at that exact point in time, uh, because at that point... It was called a backstop yeah. because the UK was claiming that it had solutions for all of this. Yes. It had solutions. There wouldn't be any borders. Don't worry. Like, we have, we have solutions. Um, and they wouldn't tell anyone what solutions were. <laughs> and the backstop was called the backstop because it was a backstop um, a default, like you say, just in case those solutions didn't exist. Exactly.
0: It would kick in if they didn't. Yeah, that's right.
1: And if the UK um, uh, accepted the backstop as a, as a fallback solution in case they didn't have any... Yeah that would have happened, right? Because they didn't have any solutions. Everyone knew they didn't. And yeah. that would have just exposed them to say these solutions didn't exist at all.
0: Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think, well, at least from what I heard, that's why it wasn't acceptable for Westminster because was ne- they thought it was never going to work and it was going to mean a border in the Irish Sea. And clearly they were going to have to own that politically. So that wasn't acceptable.
1: Right. Now, I, I'm really interested to know what the MLA's reaction was. You're Mm -hmm. talking about Diane Dodds there. So they're sitting here in the European Parliament. um, There's Bertie Ahern across the table from them. Mm -hmm. Um, How did they react to all this?
0: So we were allowed to be there for the initial part where Bertie Ahern gave his... Sort of remarks, and then there were some public statements by various MEPs and by MLAs, um, and you can pretty much categorise the reaction according to which party the MLA was from. So Alliance, <laughs> the Alliance MEPs um, or MLAs who are you know pro EU, very anti Brexit to begin with, they were like the EU is being perfectly constructive here. It's the DUP who need to get real. Uh, we need to go back into Stormont and solve this, and we're just basically pro everything the EU is saying. They're making perfect sense um and then um fein were like um they also wanted Stormont back they also were you know having to go with the dup uh they wanted to solve this the, for for them you know there isn't much they don't have an issue with the protocol um and they were they were saying the the, the interesting thing to hear them say though was that also there should be this democratic representation of Northern Ireland in these setting of regulations, which is a widely held position by basically Irish politicians. Um, and then the Unionists was interesting to hear they were quite constructive, but they the, what they wanted to get across, they were the whole mood of the entire thing was constructive, which was so interesting. There was so little like fire and conflict to what people were saying. It was almost like people were on the same page, but what they were trying to get across they were saying there is not unionist consent for this protocol, for this border in the Irish Sea. And there was an interesting phrase um, where I think Diane Dodd said, no unionist politician consents to this border, to this protocol. I think she said to this protocol. And that was so interesting because she said no unionist politician, not Mm. no unionist. And then the Alliance MLA he replied and he said, you may say no unionist politician accepts it, but I can tell you a lot of unionists do and a lot of them are voting for my party.
1: Oh God, It was a right. real
0: zinger moment, I have to say.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah. This is a kind of glaring um, fault in the anti-protocol stance, <laughs> of course, because Northern Ireland voted overwhelmingly against Brexit originally yeah. in the first place. So that means that there is a really significant unionist population who don't want any of this. Yeah. Um, Now, uh, I would first of all, I would like to kind of point out the slightly grim echoes that this all makes in the context of Northern Ireland being at a standstill, at a stalemate, at a at a standoff, whatever word you want to use. Um And having to have external actors come in as arbitrators around you know kind of neutral spaces and try and hash it out with them, and for that arbitrator to be the same arbitrator that was there during the Good Friday agreement, mm-hmm. you know um I suppose Bertie Hearn isn 't a neutral arbitrator in that uh context um but
0: he was he was respected I think that was the thing in in this particular context, it was the sort of yeah the the cachet that he brought as a kind of elder statesman figure. Who's credited with with reaching that peace agreement? But now everybody says that they want to maintain, um, yeah. including including the DUP. So yeah,
1: so it feels like kind of reopening the period of the Good Friday Agreement all mm. over again, which is a little bit grim. Um, but at least we can kind of see that you know people are still willing to work in those circumstances, which is a good thing, right? Open to talk. You got to speak to the DUP MLAs personally as a journalist, did you? Or? I spoke
0: to the Unionist group, so it included UUP and uh, DUP, so the slightly more moderate Ulster Unionist party. Um, and yeah, um, I mean, I I kind of just sidled over to them at the lunch break and I was like, so like, just interested to hear what you guys think. And they were basically polite, you know, they were like, well, you know, um, th- th- we've heard very nice words, what we need to see now are actions. That was one of the things. So like, can we see these actions brought into play? But honestly, I got the feeling like they, the ones I spoke to who were like sort of younger MLAs seemed to want an agreement and seemed to want it to be resolved. But it was so interesting because I was having that chat with them and, um, you know, they were kind of very polite, um, maybe even a little bit shy. That was sort of a, a a, a slight impression I got. And then Diane Dodds walked over and joined our group. And our conversation just went silent. It was just like silent. And she did not want to speak to me. She didn't want to speak to media. And she sat down and um, it was just like conversation over. And the impression I got from that was that what's going on here within the unionist politicians, within the unionist political community, is it's extremely hierarchical. So there's the big unionist politicians like her. She's very senior. And they are the ones who have authority to speak on this matter. And the sort of more junior ones don't. And they also aren't in a position to be anything else but uh, not giving concessions. Like they, they don't have the political room to do that. Also because that's the imperative from the top of their party. Those are the only ones who can move. So that was that was a kind of a really interesting moment to experience.
1: Okay, right. So let's move on from that, but connectedly to um, something related, which is something that you listeners cannot possibly, possibly have avoided, even if you wanted to. And that is the overwhelming media coverage and political significance in every minor detail of the passing of Britain's Queen Elizabeth II. Mm. Um, uh, what, a week ago now, uh, at the time of recording?
0: It was actually the same day that this meeting happened. So ah. that was fascinating, ah. uh, because um, apparently during the thing, there were actually some rumours... And uh, the organizer had gone to the unions and said, of course, you know, if we hear any news, then, you know, we'll we'll just cancel it. But the news actually came out uh, that she was, you know, seriously ill, just as the thing was kind of uh, concluding. And there was that tension in the air. And so that was so interesting. I mean, I think that informed my reaction to what happened about I was full of the idea of, um, you know, what's possible for reconciliation and, you know, um, I suppose res- respect and respect for unions so re- mutual respect on each side so you could and you could see everyone was too because directly after that happened one of the Irish MEPs opened a special council which is a group of MEPs who just look at uh, EU-UK parliamentary uh, relations and the first things that he said was when he opened that was he, he was a Fine Gael MEP he said we send our very best wishes for the health of Queen Elizabeth this was Sean Kelly
1: Dear colleagues Good afternoon
0: and welcome to this meeting of the delegation to the EU-UK Parliamentary Partnership Assembly. And also I would like to wish uh, the Queen of England uh, probably, I will say, good health, but just that she has been taken to hospital and uh, we hope that uh, she will be okay. but nevertheless it looks serious. I had the privilege of meeting her when she came to Dublin a number of years ago. And apart altogether from the status of her position, she was an extremely nice woman. That was the impression I have of her, and always will. So we wish her well. Today we're going to exchange views on the situation in the United
1: Kingdom politics.
0: So it was really setting this um, empathetic response, I suppose, to what was going on, and not allowing this particular event to, becoming, to become something that was abrasive
1: right sure and this was this was a tension that went on for and is still kind of going on um right now in yeah. irish politics and, and british politics and anglo-irish relations about this um we could talk forever about all of that and irish reactions to um queen elizabeth's death um etc and we will, on our exclusive extra content that we post over on Patreon. So after yes. we record this show, we were going to record a debrief and talk a little bit more about the context around um, the the funeral and the mourning period and all that.
0: And the complexity of the Irish reaction, I suppose, to all of those events. Indeed. So you can yeah. catch that over on our Patreon patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport for subscribers.
1: Yes, and you're supporting the continued making of the podcast when you sign up. So do check it out. We've got loads and loads and loads of content for you to peruse through. Um, But for now, what we're going to focus on is a specific kind of slice of, of, of all that, which was the visit of the new king, the new British king, Charles III... Is it Charles III? I think. Yeah, Charles III. Um, he came to um a place where we have been. Yeah, he actually. came to where we
0: held our live show. <laughs>
1: yes. Hillsborough <laughs> Castle. Yeah. Um, where we held a live show and we were actually he was in the throne room, um, and I was he he was there with his wife, Camilla. I oh, she's the queen now, right? She's the queen I
0: think consort or something. Queen consort. Oh yes, yeah. that
1: means that she's the wife of the king rather That's than French. the, the uh, like born queen. Um, so they were there. I couldn't help but think of me and Naomi <laughs> who were standing in the exact spot and, um, uh, you know, uh, in, in front of there. So there's two little thrones in this throne room uh, in Hillsborough Castle and they visited and they met... The MLAs now, the MLAs who are not in government at this point,
0: they're, yeah, they're not in government, yeah,
1: and it was very significant because if they were in government, the first minister of Northern Ireland right now would be Michelle O'Neill, who is of course the Sinn Féin representative. Mm. Um, so maybe, Naomi, talk to us about that.
0: This moment, yeah. So there's an it's actually an incredible moment. There's a it was videoed right, and so the first person to speak to Charles. They were sort of lined up in the same way, in the way they usually do for these uh, royal visits. The pers- first person to speak to Charles was Alex Maskey, who's the Speaker of Parliament and a Sinn Féin figure. And he expressed condolences on a very personal level in the way that you would express condolences to anybody you might meet. It was all about, you know, you've lost someone personally. Uh, we're sorry, you know, for your grief and your pain. Um, and there were, there was it was empathetic to Charles as having lost his mother. And Charles said, Yes, you know, Mama was a wonderful woman, something like that. So it was it was an it was an intimate response uh focused on this he was speaking to a, an individual who'd lost a close family member. And then the conversation moved to Michelle O'Neill, and Michelle O'Neill also uh gave Very genuine uh, sort of empathetic condolences, which echoed her initial statement, which came out quickly after the death of Queen Elizabeth, which was all about focusing on this person as an individual, not as a monarchical figure, but as a a person who had children who, you know, who would mourn her. And um, and it was a warm exchange, I would say, a warm exchange. And then there was this fascinating moment where Charles said, and uh, you're the biggest party, aren't you? And then she had to be like, yes, yes, we are.
1: it's well, great. But I know it's the moment that uh, you, know, you hope never oh, happens. Yeah. we were so lucky to have that love for seventy years. Really. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah very special many years. Ago. I know, uh, I know. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> we try and keep continuity and all sorts of other things. Absolutely, and mm-hmm. maybe we'll meet again. And reconciliation. Got so sorry for that. So very kind. Yeah. Thank, Thank you so, so, so much for so the incredibly Thank kind, so so kind of things that you said about mother Well, well, well she played a great role here in terms of reconciliation and building her peace. It's the end of an era for sure. And
0: I have to say, at least.
1: What you say, Sam, you could never read your obituaries and all the nice things people say. I know. Always <laughs> very frustrating. I know, I
0: know. We don't say enough about people whenever they're alive. No, for sure. I,
1: know, I know, For sure. Anyway, it's very good to see you again. I haven't seen I you. I see
0: you. A bit. Yes, I know. A few years. Cork, I think, was the no. last time we met. But you know the biggest part
1: of the We are indeed. We yeah. are indeed.
0: We can't help you Jeffrey And then you could see that Jeffrey Donaldson, the DUP figure who was represented there, you know, he was sort of sidelined in this exchange. Mm. It was really fascinating.
1: Yeah, right. Like, because in this context, this is... Jeffrey, this should be Jeffrey Donaldson's thing.
0: It should be his moment. It
1: should, you know, they're the ones who love the royals. You yeah. know, like they're the ones who are constantly proclaiming allegiance uh, to the monarchy and etc. They're the ones who, you know, are would say that they're standing up for all this. Yeah. And for Michelle O'Neill to steal the limelight oh. in that moment, yeah, it was just a little bit awkward. But also awkward in the fact that, uh, like, you know, there is this context that unionists have been at the head of government in Northern Ireland for almost a 100 years right until this moment so a moment like this has never happened without a unionist head mm. of Northern Ireland mm. you know accepting the accepting the visit of the king and being the one to represent northern ireland to the monarchy yeah. but the cold hard facts of the matter is that sinn fein is the biggest party yeah. and that michelle o'neill is the head of that party representing the majority of voters now uh, in the in the electoral um uh, public right yeah. um so that this is what is being presented as northern ireland it, it must have been very tough actually um maybe I thought maybe this is being this is being conjured up in my head. I thought maybe this is how it's being presented on social media um or whatever. But then, to confirm that, Eileen mm. Foster, the former leader of the Democratic Unionist Party came out and wrote a really angry kind of bitter article for the, I think it was the Belfast Telegraph, saying that Michelle O'Neill should have never got all this media coverage and that, you know, oh, she yeah. she's being favoured over the DUP and all that, which confirmed that they found it hard, actually. Yeah. It was kind of the worst thing that she could have done, really, because, you know, they could have just let that fly and tried to rise above it, but she, they really didn't. She
0: blamed the media for making it all about Sinn Féin and that it was unfair. Yeah. But, I mean, certainly the interpretation of that moment and that that exchange and the sort of private conversations as well that happened afterwards was that Charles with great kind of with equanimity accepted Sinn Féin's the largest party.
1: This yep. is, mm. uh, you
0: know, this is who's uh, kind of representing. And also I know, I don't know how much this is interpretation, but a fair amount of scorn for the DUP in not allowing the governing storm to be formed. Mm. It That was certainly the interpretation that they were not happy that the structures set up by the Good Friday Agreement were running because the DUP refuses to form an executive.
1: Yeah, you know, and like as we were, as this was going on, I was preparing our next episode on the War of Independence. And one thing that comes up in that episode is George V was king at that point Mm. and he opens the storm in Parliament Mm. uh, in 1921. And it's just this really weird parallel because George V apparently was really upset with the Westminster government about the Black and Tans and about uh-huh. the excesses of the violence that were going on in Ireland, about partition, about all of us. He thought this has all gone wrong. He didn't like any of this. And he, he kind of tried to put himself forward as a reconciling king. Uh-huh. So when he opened the parliament in Stormont in 1921, he made this big speech about reaching out the hand of friendship to the people of the South and Irish people coming together and putting their differences Behind them and all this kind of putting politics aside a little bit in you know yeah. relatively in the context of a monarch, um, and you know just being very kind of open um, uh, and across the across the aisle kind of speech right, yeah. and for Charles to Charles the third to kind of take. fairly kind of um, neutral stance on this to just recognise the leader of the biggest party and because that's just the facts of the matter it really was an echo of that for me actually. That's so
0: interesting Yeah, Mm. to look at it with that historical perspective. The other thing is like we don't really know what goes on in the brains of these royals because everything is so incredibly controlled and some of that description of George that you're talking about to me is a little bit like you know the king's wicked advisors there's always this mm. mix about how the monarchs are really really good and they want the best for everyone and that they're so sweet true. you know which yeah. <laughs> and of course the reaction um the emotional reaction at the grassroots is at variance to what's represented at the Thai political level because yes. they're acting politically mm. right and they're acting politically and clearly there's a premium on this empathy this coming together t- being the bigger person thing mm. which Tim Payne is doing um yeah, yeah the
1: whole thing like the reactions to the death of the queen just like all over the world yeah. are extremely heterogeneous heterogeneous in ireland yeah and i, th- I don't think we would be right really to just say what the reaction in ireland is because it really does vary quite a lot <laughs> it
0: varies a lot yeah <laughs> to
1: a huge extent but, we like you say, that. we will get to that in our debrief, yeah. um, but like you say, Naomi, what's kind of important in this context is the official reaction, what yes. the official governments, North and South, or sorry, the official parties, North and South, have decided to take as the quote-unquote party line. At a
0: political level, it's interesting, because this is, this is Sinn Féin being statesman-like. Yeah.
1: This and is they, Sinn
0: Féin ready for power. You know? Yeah,
1: yeah. And they went all, right off the bat, right? Yes. They knew exactly what they were going to oh, do. Oh, they were
0: prepared for Straight this, away,
1: yeah. um, after the Queen's death, there yeah. was, you know, uh, condolences sent out on social media. Very
0: pointedly, genuine, personally. You know, you couldn't say that it was inauthentic mm. reading it. Yet. It's
1: true, yeah. yeah. I mean, like, uh, the first reaction of a lot of people was that this is completely cynical. They couldn't care less whether the Queen lives or dies. Mm. Uh, you know, they, there's lots of people in that party who would be very happy to see her dead, etc, etc but they put in enough of an effort that it did seem like you know what like kudos actually this is fair enough they talked about
0: the person they knew because they have actually met her Yeah, and uh, yeah it was was interesting
1: yeah right Um, also there is a kind of political tradition of this I mean a lot of when uh, Charles visited Northern Ireland, there was a lot of talk about the last time that Queen Elizabeth visited the Republic of Ireland mm-hmm. and that it was this big moment, which we will talk about uh, in the debrief once yeah. again. Uh, no time here. Um, but there, there is a, a history of this, mm-hmm. a history of confirmed Irish nationalists who have no interest in unionism whatsoever Taking the higher ground and mm-hmm. realizing its political potential to try and use the monarchy actually. The monarchy as something that is separate from the rest of the parliament in the UK, the something right. you know, yeah. something kind of relatively neutral to try and say this could be a real opportunity for diplomacy. Mm-hmm. And in the South as well, the flags were at half mast on mm-hmm. government buildings, and that was very much what I call the Mary Macalise. Strategy (laughs) in all this, uh, which who was the president uh, at that time in 2011? It's
0: it's about yeah, showing maturity and trying to normalize relations, essentially. Yeah, Um, we may move to. Uh, uh, politics in the republic and what's going on in the Irish government right now Mm -hmm. because we are coming to a moment of potential instability uh, in politics in the south Um, as we remember in the last election Sinn Féin made enormous gains uh, but didn't run enough candidates to fully take advantage of that they became the official opposition and the old rivals with the old civil war baggage um finnegal and finna ended up forming a coalition and there they remain now as part of their coalition agreement because it's you know there's a lot of ego involved with these two parties going into uh, government together Mm. because they both think that they have some sort of right to rule um they made this agreement where the t-shock Rotating T shock is a phrase that always makes me laugh because I imagine like a spinning T shock, you
1: know.
0: But anyway, like a rotisserie. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so we're coming up to the moment where they rotate. Currently, it's uh, it's Michal Martin T shock, and in December. According to the coalition agreement, there's, he's supposed to swap places with Leo Varadkar. Once again. Coming back onto the scene once mm. more uh, from Fine Gael.
1: <laughs> Yes, coming, coming back out from the curtains. Now, so that's, <laughs> that's happening in December. Uh, so it's, it's been two years since Mihal Martin was... In off, in Taoiseach office, I think right? They
0: rotate. I can't remember, Tim. Don't uh, yeah. test me. The, the pandemic has totally screwed with my idea. Yes,
1: I, yeah, I don't know what yeah. happened in the last two years, <laughs> honestly. Um, so when would be? Uh, I, I would presume on that basis then that Leo Fratker is expected to be in there for another two years. When is the soonest that another general election could happen?
0: An election has to take place by twenty twenty five. So there's a little ways to go. Okay. There's a ways to go.
1: All right. Okay. And
0: they don't they're not delighted with ruling together and often particularly in Fianna Fáil because Fianna Fáil being the, you know, timely crumb of what it used to be. Um, down in the grassroots, there they get upset sometimes with being in this coalition because they're like, "We're not growing in the polls." You know, this is just sort of like creating the idea that there's no difference between us and Finnegale, which you know some people would say is true. Mm. And um, that and they, they get they get antsy and they talk about they maybe don't want to be there anymore in this coalition. And every now and again, these tensions flare up, and ever so ever so often, you wonder whether the coalition will last. But they have this imperative to keep it going. Because of Sinn Féin. Because Sinn Féin are now ready. They know what they can get in terms of a percentage vote. And no doubt they'll be making all their preparations to have their TDs, uh, potential TDs, running in all the right constituencies to try and get the maximum possible seats. So they're sort of waiting in the wings and those two parties are are hanging on. I think they're hoping that they can do enough on the big touch button issues, like particularly housing and stuff like that, to... uh, to sate people's anger uh, a little bit, mm. to wait and see if the whole Sinn Féin momentum diffuses a little bit, mm. uh, to you know which can happen, you know mem- political, political men- momentum comes and goes and can be a little unpredictable, and also with big global uncertainties that have happened like the pandemic like the war in Ukraine um, these things I think they wonder you know could this make the electorate think twice about a big upheaval like you know do we want to rock the boat right now or mm. do we want the the steady hands at the wheel so these are the kind of um, the things they're taking into account and that's that's an imperative for them to keep the coalition together
1: right yeah and um, you can see god the the pressure that must be on them now on both parties um, this is a big problem, them being, it's a kind of traditional line that Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael these days are just the are same no thing. Mm. And I mean, we're in this terrible situation now here where a lot of these big problems that you mentioned there, and in particular, the housing issue, yeah. has just gone unaddressed effectively.
0: For so long. For like a
1: decade now, at least. Like, it's just been so long. And the big hope to fix this was for a new party to come in and do it, you know, because the other party didn't and now you have you you've had the two parties together and it still hasn't been fixed in fact it's just gotten so so much worse now yeah. naomi and i were talking about this um just earlier mm. just how many people we know now just i mean just it's un- an unbelievable number of people who have been affected personally mm-hmm. by the housing situation. I, w- I woke up this morning and I saw an article in a French newspaper about French students yes. having to come home um, because they, just, they were homeless. They had been living in, um, in their friends' houses and stuff because they just couldn't find somewhere to live to go to university in Ireland, yeah. even though they had been sent to Ireland as this great place, a lovely place to learn English, you know, a place with not very much crime. It's a really popular location. And here they are having to come home. Yeah, you know, like so, it's it's not just damaging, you know, um, uh, politics uh, uh, domestically. It's yeah. damaging Ireland's reputation quite significantly now on in the international stage.
0: Yeah, the French embassy actually put out like a warning in their advice to citizens going to Ireland about the housing crisis.
1: My God. Yeah. Yeah. So wh- I mean, I I pity any government coming into power now mm-hmm. and trying to fix something that has been let fester. The
0: structural issues. That's Hmm. the problem. So there's the backlog of housing that hasn't been built. The demand for homes each year far, far exceeds the number that are being built. And there's all sort of structural reasons for this. Um, The financing model for housing collapsed in the crash, and never really returned. We're Mm -hmm. only starting to see construction sort of increase now. Um, The government's been doing various things, but they do have a bias of letting the market solve it and that's what's been the overriding presumption for much of the last decade and it hasn't worked mm. um you know there's there's a uh, a bias against too much government intervention and also taking out too much debt to directly spend on housing because there's still this um you know they want to balance the books all the time they want to uh sort of have a reputation about, um, you know, being prudent fiscally and stuff like that. And they've done little tweaks. They had some... So all the kind of, like, somewhat caps on rent in a little way that you couldn't hike it by a certain amount um, over a certain amount in in areas of rent pressure Uh, and they had other things but you know the sort of the more interventionist approach has always been shied away from and many of the sort of critics and the academics that look at us look at these interventions things like right to buy say that many of them have actually unintendedly worsened the situation um, by, by one way or another for example you know helping young people with deposits has actually meant that people have greater deposits further driven up the price Mm. and it's gotten to this point where globally um, we're looking at many countries, the, the, the price of housing will probably fall because borrowing is going to be more expensive because interest rates are going up Uh, because the central banks are hiking interest rates base rates in order to curb inflation but that's expected to have a limited effect in Ireland because the difference between supply and demand is so dramatic there's just so many people waiting to try and buy houses and uh, it can't be overstated the profound effect that this has on people's lives people are in a suspended state where they can't properly start their lives as adults because they're sharing really tiny accommodation with other adults you've got couples you know who can't have children when they want to because they don't have space they don't have security uh it's it's horrific um and I, like it's 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 just extreme and it's been so bad for so long that people are losing hope
1: mm. yeah um for more kind of details on those structural issues yeah. we made a podcast years ago yeah. about this yeah. called the housing crisis you can go and look it up uh, if you're interested. Because it's still exactly the it's same relevant. issues today. Yeah. We could have made it yesterday, and it would be still exactly the same stuff. Um, so it is kind of shocking to see that. Um, yeah, like you say, Naomi. You know, like we have families with children who are living in their parents' houses in basements and stuff. Oh yeah. And this is happening just up and down the country.
0: In you know, in my family, friends, it's just it's, it's throughout. It's yeah. There's so many people who are who are living with their parents, and the worst thing is they don't have hope that this can change because the the difference between wages and the price of houses is, is so extreme that trying to save up for one is like it's 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 a, it's impossible and the way you, the only way you can do it really is if you inherit money that you can use for a deposit Mm. so what happens is it ingrains this inequality some people are able to buy houses because they get family help Mm. and then you have this really deeply ingrained inequality that passes from one generation to another it's a really big problem
1: and even for those people who have large inheritances from from wherever um the prices that they're paying for houses mean that that money just doesn't go very far anyway right like often they're still constrained to buy houses that might be in a different town from where they work and commute so this whole thing is kind of going up and down the ladder
0: it was fascinating I actually I was in Dublin there last weekend and we went to a pub um, to celebrate a friend's birthday and I was privy to this really interesting conversation Uh, so everybody around the table was in like 20s early 30s and you know one of the guys uh, said you know I'm probably going to emigrate to London in the next year that's probably where it's heading because I just don't see a future for myself here. And that was almost like the consensus view among the young people around the table that they didn't see a future for themselves or how they could build a future in Ireland. They didn't see seem to be anywhere out and they were considering emigrating and they were mostly talking about London. Now, the thing that was fascinating was that at the table with them was another friend who was actually from London, a British guy. And he had emigrated to Ireland 10 days previously. He'd come in the other direction. And he was like, I, he told me I emigrated to flee Liz Truss. He was like, it's just gone <laughs> so politically crazy over there. And he was sort of saying, he was like, like oh, he was Kind of gently saying to the Irish people like, well, there are things that are nice about Ireland, you know, <laughs> like, there, there are things that are nice. And I think, you know, prob- possibly what isn't appreciated as well is that this issue of housing and inequality and difficulty, this isn't something that is unique to Ireland. It is actually a problem elsewhere, mm. which is so difficult because simply emigrating isn't necessarily the solution to the problem anymore mm. because you will go into a context where... Whether that pro- that problem is also the case, it's particularly intense in Ireland and difficult. Um, but and also because it's a small market, so it's like there just aren't that many houses to go around. Um, but yeah, it's it's also a problem in the UK, which it always makes me worry when people talk about immigrating because it's like they're going into a situation which is also extremely difficult.
1: Yeah, right. That that image of fleeing Liz Truss gave me a a mental vision of her in fox hunting gear, you know, with a gun <laughs> chasing you through a forest. <laughs> Okay, now you were telling me earlier that this whole rotating t-shirt thing, by yep. the way, which uh, another lovely vision I have is uh, one of those Swiss clocks, you <laughs> know, those public clocks where, like, somebody comes out and then they go back in Coo-coo. and, like, chop a tree or something. <laughs> so once this um, this one little tree chopper has gone into the Swiss clock and yeah. Leo Veronica comes out the other side... <laughs> Um, you were telling me that there is a kind of foible about this with uh, Pascal Donahue, the finance minister in yeah, the EU. Yeah, this
0: is interesting. So this has this unintended side effect. Right now, our finance minister, Pascal Donahue happens to be president of the Eurogroup. The Eurogroup is a group of finance ministers, all the finance ministers of the countries that use the euro, and they meet more or less monthly. And it's actually, it's kind of an informal group. It doesn't have executive power, like it doesn't set laws or something like that, but it's really, really politically powerful. It was it was extremely important during the whole crash years and the bailouts and everything like that. All the key conversations happened in the Eurogroup. Um, and so it's going to be really important because everyone is expecting that there's going to be a massive recession and that we could have those sorts of questions coming up again like our country's going to go bankrupt is there a threat to the euro going under as a currency all these kind of issues and there's also a massive looming debate about the eu's fiscal rules you can't borrow above a certain amount of year and you can't run a deficit above a certain amount of year because they say that you know you have to not have divergences between countries to stop the currency but like basically falling apart. Um, but they're really, really controversial, those rules, particularly in the south of Europe, where they basically said, these rules have constrained us from for, from investing for years. These, these rules are good for Germany, but for us, it means that our economies are less competitive. We can't make the investments we need. We need to borrow to make... Good investments so that the economy is bigger in the future, so that we can then pay down our debt that 's the basic basic thing and then the the northern view if we can stereotype it is like no, no, you need to live within your means, you need to just keep saving and paying down that debt and not be borrowing and spending more so there's like two very different views on this, and this debate is going to be mostly figured out in the Eurogroup between these finance ministers, and the current chair of it is Pascal Donoghue um the reason why he won an election he was elected by his fellow finance ministers therefore the other by the governments basically of the other eu countries um more or less 2 years ago and um uh, he has i mean honestly he's i i wrote a piece about this this week and i went speaking to the other eu countries finance ministers teams and stuff like that and they're basically like yeah he's doing a good job he's good even the ones that ran against him and wanted the position for themselves and didn't want him to win, uh, they weren't bitter about it. They were like, yeah, no, he's all right. <laughs> Yeah. So like he didn't have right so he's basically viewed to have done a generally good job. And if you are exposed to Pascal Donahue and listen to him, you may be familiar with how careful he speak. Like it's almost it's actually very frustrating to interview him as a journalist cuz it's almost impossible to get him to say something that will make like, a headline cuz he's so careful. But this very careful, subtle speech and he is a brain. Like he he, he does have a brain and uh, he's pretty intelligent. This this works to his favor in Essentially, what his role is there is to listen to the different views of all the EU countries that use the euro and try to synthesize it into one common view, which mm. is a challenge because they have really different views, and then to try and represent that at these high-level meetings. So he gets invited to the European Council. He's, he's, he's side by side with Christine Lagarde, uh, who's the um, the director of the European Central Bank um, and, you know, the, the European Commission's Economy Chief Paolo Gentiloni, and he's have Ireland is the Irish government basically thinks where I say not government the state believes having a guy in that position who's side by side working with those other senior global economic people uh, figures that that's advantageous to Ireland. It mm. has an Irish ear and an Irish brain and Irish voice in a re, in where in rooms where important decisions are made. So basically, they value it. Now, here comes the rub, okay? (laughs) Stay with me. I know this this is probably very dry, is it, Tim? I hope it's not.
1: You're wonderful, Naomi. Please (laughs) continue.
0: (laughs) Okay, so the problem is, right, his term ends in January. It's a two and a half year term. Almost always the Eurogroup presidents have more than one term. And it was expected that he would probably run unopposed to be the president again for the next two and a half years. Mm. That was the expectation. But meanwhile, in Dublin, the cabinet is going to rotate. The Taoiseach is going to change. And Fianna Fáil, who are now, uh, they say that if they're not going to have the Taoiseach anymore, they must have the finance minister. The finance minister must be from the Fianna Fáil party. And they wanted to be this guy called Michael McGrath, Ah.
1: who's
0: the finance minister in waiting, let's say, of, of Fianna Fáil. So that means that the person who Ireland would be expected to send to the Eurogroup as their representative would not be Pascal Donoghue. It would be Michael McGrath. Uh. And so uh, it it may be that Ireland will lose that presidency of the Eurogroup because of this reshuffle. Uh. Because M- Michael McGrath will go. And there's been some, it's really illustrated to me the real knowledge gap that there is between a, like Irish, the Irish bubble And what is going on in the EU? Because I heard some people asking whether Michael McGrath could take over the presidency of the Eurogroup. And it's just... Anyone who asks that question doesn't know what's going on. Doesn't know anything about the Eurogroup. Like, they don't know who he is. They don't know the guy. He's not going to go into that room and suddenly be elected the chief of all the finance ministers when they've never met him before. Mm. And also, like... They wouldn't do that because they'd be like, "Well, Ireland just had it, so we're going to give it to another country now." And also, you know, we don't want to make the precedent that if a certain country has the Eurogroup and then they change something domestically at home, that we just accept whoever they've appointed as our as our chief. Mm. Like, it's just not going to happen. You need someone who's like really experienced and has the respect of the finance ministers. It's based on their their them personally and very n- not the country that they come from. Um, so basically, there is this risk. There's a proposal now that maybe they could, because de- there's there's another ministry which is called Minister for Public Expenditure, okay? So if they could say, Pascal is Ministry <laughs> for Public Expenditure, there's another finance minister, but the guy who we're sending to the Eurogroup is our Minister for Public Expenditure. Possibly that could be a way forward to, for Ireland to keep the presidency of the Eurogroup. Um, But it's it's a little bit shaky. It all just depends on the consent of the other finance ministers. And nobody knew about this in Brussels at all until about last week when it became began to come to people's attention. And suddenly you don't hear, oh, well, he's just going to run unopposed for presidency anymore. You you hear people saying, well, we need to hear what the Irish government is going to do. And then we'll see, which means people are thinking about it. The more uncertainty there is, the more chance there will be that there will be people who will oppose Pascal Donoghue who who will try and get the presidency. Countries will try and go for it. So it basically looks like that Ireland is at risk of losing this big position. And it is, I I did hear an official, a non-Irish official, liken it to the whole drama that there was around Phil Hogan. Ireland had a very powerful EU commissioner and due to domestic politics, he lost his position, basically. And they were like, you know, it's, it's, it's Phil Hogan all over again and Ireland is yanking people out of these key positions which it lobbied for and got um, because of domestic politics. And it, it does make me wonder whether it could affect when Ireland goes for such positions in the future, mm. whether people were like, well, how long is the guy going to be in there? is going to something stay at home. Ah. It does say it's basically it comes across a little messy.
1: Yeah, well, it is a little messy. I <laughs> think that's fair enough to yeah. say. Uh, Listen, I think we've covered loads already. I'm going to ask the golden Naomi O'Leary journalist question, rules of Naomi O'Leary's Journalism 101. Okay. Is there anything that I haven't asked you, Naomi, today that you think is important to mention about? Just general events that are going on with... Ireland the EU and the UK at the moment
0: the one thing that I didn't say which I probably would say is basically in terms of what's going to happen with the protocol
1: Mm. there
0: is really one person who can choose that and it's Liz Truss everybody is really waiting for what her decision is going to be is she going to escalate is she going to come striding in and pose as this real strong uh, like hardline person a new Maggie Thatcher who's going to bang her handbag or whatever and demand things (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm, get, I'm getting my metaphors mixed up. Find her <laughs> fist on the table, slash bash people with a hammock and, and try and get things that way. Or is she going to use her moment to try and reconcile things and actually not have conflict anymore? I'd say that people are not that hopeful because of the political imper- imperative in the UK that favours this conflict. Also because she appointed key people from that ERG that we mentioned, mm. ERG, arch-Brexiteers, were appoint- appointed actually to the Northern Ireland office, mm. including Steve Baker, who's now a junior minister there. And so clearly, you know, he's almost like, he's like a canary in the coal mine or a, or a trigger point. If she does anything that's not satisfactory to the erg, he'll resign. <laughs> and then that will put pressure on her politically, you know? Mm. Um, so they've got this sort of card that they can play and threaten, to keep her in line and to keep her being hardline about this. But it's ultimately, like, they can demand all they want, but the EU is just not going to agree to certain things. So Mm. it, it it is something of a fruitless path.
1: Oh, well, imagine that. <laughs> uh, uh, it's funny that we see that in this whole context, a fruitless path of uh, domestic politics leading absolutely nowhere and everybody mm-hmm. else suffering. Uh, the, yeah.
0: This week will be key for a couple of reasons. Um, everyone's, all, all the statesmen, all the, all the leaders are all going to this funeral. Um, and then after that, there's a big gathering in New York, a bunch of them will be there. And Liz Truss is going to meet with Biden there. Um, He was actually supposed to visit Downing Street, but he cancelled it, which is kind of spicy. And they're going to meet on his turf instead over in the US. And we can expect that he's going to give her an earful again about the protocol because he does that every time. He's basically like, yeah, Good Friday Agreement comes first. Get the institutions up and running. You signed an agreement and you should respect it, basically. That's a real irritant in US-UK relations. And we can expect that to be um, doubled down on again.
1: Okay, listeners, you have had your bag full of Brexit and Ireland politics (laughs) updates. My God, Naomi and Mary, well done, but bravo. Uh, Thank you so much. So um, just a quick reminder that you can get our debrief on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash The Irish Passport, with some extra content about the uh, mourning period for Queen Elizabeth II, and also that our uh, next instalment, our final instalment, actually the grand finale of our little mini-series on the War of Independence will be coming as our next episode. Unless something huge happens in yeah. the intervening period. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. All right. Okay. See you guys. Thanks so much. Slon from me.
0: Slon.